Welcome again to Fat Free Film. I'm Joel Marshall. And I'm Pamela Lopez Dawson. And we have the privilege of having with us today Patricia Arquette, an incredible actress, um, humanitarian, and person. And um, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Thank you. Now, your family, uh, you have a long line of actors and performers in your family. Um, what is that like? Your great-grandparents were performers also? Yeah, my great-grandparents, um, Clark and Arquette, were in vaudeville. And they were the parents of Cliff Arquette, my grandfather. So he, he grew up on that sort of vaudeville circuit when he was little, and then he transferred into live radio. And then from there, he started in live television. And then... Uh, he kind of retired pretty early, and then um, the Jack Parr show was on, and very popular at the time, and all of a sudden Jack Parr said one night, hey, what happened to Charlie Weaver, this, this guy? If anybody knows where Charlie Weaver is, you know, he was really funny, and that was great. And so my grandpa kind of wrote him a letter, and Jack Parr made him a you know, semi-regular guest. <clears throat> so he'd come on there and kind of revived his career, and... He was a very interesting man. He also had a Civil War museum, and uh, he was a Civil War maniac. And he ended up um, saving a lot of the famous battlefields because they were just starting to sort of begin to build all these mini malls and grocery stores. And he realized there was these important battlefields historically, so he told people, you know, send in a dollar to help save a battlefield. So they bought up all these battlefields that they made. Um, um, Historical. Historical sites, yeah. Wow. Um, how, how early on did you know that you wanted to be an actor? When we were very little, we lived in a hippie commune at a certain point in time. Uh, it wasn't really the way people think of hippie communes. If you haven't been there, it was sort of a spiritual community, so it wasn't free sex, free drugs, or anything like that. There was a lot of families and a lot of kids running around. And my dad had been working in New York on Broadway. He'd done Sweet Bloody Liberty, and he'd done um, story theater with Paul Sills and improvisational groups by Ellis Bolin. So um, we would end up doing a lot of those sort of performances as kids, little miniature versions. We performed at the Philadelphia Folk Festival. And there was this sort of inverted hill in this hippie commune we lived in. Uh, it was called The Bowl. It was like a giant grass bowl. And we, we went, we were very, very poor, but we went to go see a couple movies. We saw Dumbo, Billy Jack, and Fiddler on the Roof. And when we saw Fiddler on the Roof, we all came back and built a whole village in the bowl, the kids. And so we would perform all day long like we were villagers. We were washing things. We were... <laughs> And then we would do these little plays. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so would you say, now, would you say that that was the beginning of your training as an actor? I would. And then, um, I'm not where joking. did you, yeah. I really would. And I think that that's true. I mean, a lot of times um, kids are really good actors and, because they just have, a, have an ability to believe things an ability to just jump right in there and do things without a kind of a self-consciousness. And I think somewhere around, just from working with children as actors, I find that somewhere around high school or something, they start to become very self-conscious mm -hmm. and, and not as 
uh, able to jump in there without a fear of uh, being foolish. Mm -hmm. um, where did you go from there as far as with your acting training? Well, because my father was an actor, um, we, it was always, and a lot of his friends were actors, it was kind of always on the periphery. Mm -hmm. So whenever we'd all get together in these big parties, like somebody would play a game with us. And those games would consist of like, okay, you guys, now, now you're all lions. So go around the room as lions. So we'd be like moving around like lions. Okay, now you're transitioning into this other thing, and now this other thing. So it's sort of like these little minuscule acting exercises that were our play experiences all the time growing up. And then um, my brother Richmond wrote and directed this this piece that he called James Long. You know, it was a real kind of bad guy, good guy thing when we were living in Chicago. And um, I James Long was was the hero cop guy. I was with, having dinner with the robber at this fancy restaurant, and I had a necklace. I think I was like six or seven, and then the lady came in whose necklace had been stolen. Said, That's my necklace! And snatched it off me, and oh, I was upset. <laughs> so that was my first film work, really. Oh, you shot <clears throat> that? Oh, yeah, we shot that. What did you film what? it on? He shot it on, like, Super 8 or mm -hmm. High 16. My... My grandfather and my dad were really like sort of those kind of gadgety early film people. My grandpa did a lot of that experimental stuff in his own home movies with that double um, exposures and like he'd have little miniatures dancing and then his face would be really big looking at them. And hold, I'm getting yelled at. Hold on a second. Okay. I'm doing a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I'm recording a podcast right now. What? I'm just telling you. So, can we get some intermission music? This break is brought to you by. <laughs> Your name here. My goodness. Sorry. That's good. All right. So, you guys shot that on. Uh, on... Wait a second. Just give it a little time and then start. Just, it'll be easier to edit. Are you going to edit it? I might. Oh. Oh, I will now. <laughs> <laughs> Go. So you guys shot that on Super 16 or High 8 and then Richmond edited it? Yep, he edited it with my dad. I don't think we can find it. I haven't seen it in so many years. I think it got lost in some kind of, you know, vortex of some sort. But um, And I've been transferring all the old family movies and finding all these kind of treasures of things. And then we moved to California, and uh, I decided I wanted to make some money. How old were you then? Then I was seven when we moved to California. You already wanted to make some money? Yeah, we were not very wealthy, <laughs> and there were things I needed to have in Los Angeles because I didn't really realize that... Um, material objects mattered at all. I remember moving to LA from Chicago and somebody said, Oh, does your, you know, what does your dad drive? And I said, yeah, my dad has a car because in the commune, a lot of people didn't even have a car. There was a few people who had cars and they would help lug around everything for everybody. So I was like, yeah, my dad has a car. And they were like, what kind of car? And I didn't even know there were different kinds of cars. So I said, mm -hmm. I don't know. It's a blue one. They were like, <laughs> What kind? Is it a Mercedes? Is it a Ford? Is it a... I was like, I don't know. I mean, 
<laughs> so when I moved to LA, I had a big, strange experience with this sort of material object desire and need and, and a feeling of not wanting to put too much pressure on my parents because they didn't have a lot of money, but trying to also have what everybody else had so that I kind of fit in. So I was like, I'm going to do commercials, okay? And my mom was like, oh, no, okay, if you really want to. So I started to go to uh, auditions. And I started to see the stage moms, and I just said, I don't want to do this. And my mom said, good, I'm glad. How did you, you got your mom to take you to the auditions, mm -hmm. and you got her to take you to get headshots and do the whole thing? Yeah. We, we met some guy who did headshots for really, really cheap, and yeah. Yeah, and also my dad, because he was a working actor, okay. sometimes I would come, or, or one of my siblings would come at the end of his photo session, and they'd shoot a couple of pictures of us, you know? And so you, did you ever do any commercials, or you just hated it right away? No, I didn't do any. Yeah, I, I didn't like it right away. I didn't like the parents that were there. I didn't like the vibe. I didn't like anything. So I just sort of didn't do that. And then my sister was started acting, and she was doing really, really well. And, um, and it's Rosanna. Yeah, Rosanna, yeah. How old were you when this when your sister was doing well? Well, she was doing gradually more, you know, the older I got, but um, probably about around the time I was like 10 or 11, she started really, you know, doing really well. And that was cool because people had heard of my sister and that was kind of neat they thought she was cool and pretty and stuff. But we didn't follow it a lot. In a weird way, I kind of took it for granted because my dad had been doing the Waltons and doing all these TV shows. And By the end, I just got sick of even asking him what he was doing. I'm going to work. Okay, fine, bye. I didn't know what project he was working on because it was too much. It was always changing, and I, I just didn't keep up with it. So I was a very shy person. I was interested in acting because, predominantly because, for me, I... I was always an observer. I mean, I remember when I was like five or six being at a party and I knew these, this couple was married, but you know, she was wearing something and she tried to put on makeup and look pretty and she was trying to talk to her husband and he was kind of treating her with disdain and flirting with this other woman and I could see the married lady's face and I was sort of like, I could just see a lot of emotions. I could see little stories with behavior, emotional behavior, and so, but I was a pretty shy person, and as I got older, sort of, I was not comfortable really expressing myself as myself, so I sort of liked the idea of expression, expressing the human experience of those sort of emotional undercurrents. Do you think there are a lot of actors <clears throat> who are shy by nature and find this as a, a, an outlet for their... Uh, emotions and their uh, the life that perhaps they are not so that's not as easy to show as them their usual self. Yeah, I do. Yeah. I do think there's a lot of people like that. <clears throat> I mean, I, I've met quite a few of them. Yeah, but I think they're also oftentimes introverted extroverts. And once you get to know them, they're pretty extroverted. But mm -hmm. at first, they're sort of awkward. Or, um, also, storytelling for me. My mom taught mythology and really loved mythology, and she was a therapist. So 
she would teach us this other side where my dad would talk about the practical things. My dad was always miming things. My dad was always, you know, pretending he was opening a tuna fish can, you know, and opening little doors with his hands, and there was nothing there. So physically, he was always talking about physical life and things like that, and humor and, and that kind of improvisation, where my mom would talk to us about um, early men and, when they first heard thunder, they had to make stories for what is this thing? So they would say God, a God was angry and God was throwing down lightning bolts or, or this goddess was crying or something or having a rageful thing. So just the idea of the storyteller within the human being group was interesting to me too. And then she was also a therapist. So talking, she started to expose me to sort of all these subconscious behaviors that people would have, you know, starting to learn about like what a narcissist was and what this was and that was. So when I started to break down parts, I could look at them in different ways and I might take one project and say, okay, I'm gonna really <clears throat> um, apply a lot of this to that. What's this, this character's subconscious um, therapeutic issues. Okay, they're a narcissist, and what scenes am I going to show that in? They have, you know, intimacy issues, or, you know, or they're codependent, or, okay, how am I going to show this in these scenes? So I would label them with, you know, psychological issues, and then play them that way, so that they're not aware of it, but I, as an actor, could be aware of it. Or I might take a different project and say, like, <clears throat> explore it in a more, like, almost naturalistic or um, primitive way. Like, okay, so when I did Wildflower, I had this acting teacher named Roy London who was really interesting, and he said, okay, so you're playing this girl who's been locked in a room and she hasn't been exposed to a lot of stimuli, no one's taken the time to explain to her, oh, this is a water tap, and when you turn it on, the water comes out, and, you know, they haven't explained anything to her. But you can't play a quote-unquote handicapped person as less than anybody else, because their other senses kick in, and this particular girl has had to make up her own whole story for what everything is. Mm. So that was sort of like almost creating... Um, a parallel universe for her. No, it was almost like creating a culture of one. You know, like, okay, so she had to sit around her own fire and say to herself, what is that loud sound outside that's thunder? Mm. And she'd have to explain what does that thunder mean, you know? Because no one was going to explain that to her. And she couldn't hear, so, so no one was even bothering to talk to her. So she would have to figure out why the smell changed, you know? And then the rain came down. Nobody was going to explain that to her. So it was kind of liberating to look at that particular character in that way. And that's what's great about acting, too, to me, because you can break down projects in different ways. I mean, even the way that certain painters, and I'm not saying that I'm great at this, but you can look at realists, and then you can start looking at impressionists, and then you start seeing cubists, and you can look at a cubist painting of, like, a lady spinning, and at first it looks like these sort of art 
half moon shapes and circles. Then you start to say, when you read that it's a woman spinning with a yellow dress, you start saying, oh yeah, that's her yellow skirt, I see it. Oh, there's her face in there. You can kind of experiment with doing different experimentations like that with acting where you say, each scene's going to be a different color. Even abstractions like that, like, I'm going to be blue in this scene. This scene, I'm going to be this color of red. Um, so it's like always free. I've done other projects where I sort of was like a historical, you know, I had to read. I looked back at the Farmer's Almanac and looked at the books that came out in that year and read books from that year and what were common songs at that time and I mean research to the umpteenth level of you know and that's really exciting to approach different characters in different ways. And sometimes it's what ignites you in that particular character also sometimes it can be a piece of clothing sometimes it mm -hmm. can be like you're saying like the color blue it can mean something to you and all of a sudden bang you're in there. Now that's something that I find with really good directors is that they'll be able to say a minimal amount of words sometimes and just say, well, why don't you think about this? And then all of a sudden something will drop into a groove. I know you've worked with um, a lot of, I, I guess I'd say innovative directors. Some of them, um, I might say crazy directors. <laughs> um, what has it been like with those particular directors? Like, let's say David Lynch. What was it like working with him? David Lynch had a really interesting... Um way of doing things. Visually, he was very minimalistic. Um, sometimes he would listen to music on one headphone mm -hmm. um, to see particular scenes. He wanted them to have a certain emotional quality that this music had, that worked with this music. But you didn't know what the music was. Mm. Mm. It was his own. You didn't know. Um, in the dream sequences, well, not the dream sequences, but all the early sequences with Renee and Bill. Mm -hmm. This is in Lost their marriage. Highway. Yeah, in Lost Highway. Mm -hmm. um, there's this almost somnambulistic meter to it because they're living together and they're acting okay, but like when she comes home, he feels her. When he comes home, he feels her car hood to see if she's actually driven. Mm -hmm. There's this suspiciousness between them, but nobody's talking about it. It's like two big cats that are acting like, it's fine, it's fine, but one of us is going to kill the other one. Mm -hmm. But we're not going to say anything. So when we go to shoot the scenes, uh, we do them and David would say, take more time, which you never really hear in movies. So mm -hmm. like, faster, faster, faster. Mm -hmm. Come on, let's pick it up. So you do it again and he'd say, no, 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 more time, more time. So you'd almost be scared. Like, it feels like way too much time what we're taking here. <laughs> but, but it was exciting to actually have that opportunity. So afterwards, you'd be like, is that what you're talking about, David? Because it extended past a normal amount of time mm. to, to an amount of time people would take when they're really watching each other and stalking each other and really uncomfortable amount of time, which she ended up getting on screen, which was really great in this uncomfortable marriage mm -hmm. to have these extended periods and almost this hatred, you mm -hmm. know, between them that was kind of made the air really thick. So he would do really interesting things like that. And he would also, his crew really loved him a lot and he believed in the, 
the room for mistakes to be inspiration. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. So I remember one point we were doing this scene where I was walking down this hallway and it went like from dark into the light. And it was one of those situations where the camera guy says, okay, try to stay like four and a half feet behind me. You know, try to keep this constant space between us. And that's kind of hard because you can't look at the camera. So you're trying to gauge it, see them out of your peripheral vision where they are. So afterwards, David said, great, print it. And and the camera guy said, "Uh, no, David, it wasn't any good for us because she was inside minimal focuses. What do you mean? I mean, at certain points she came blurry and then she... And David said, well, that's great. Print that. I want to take a look at that. People have to get used to different blurry and, mm-hmm. you know, that there was room for that. He wouldn't just rely on that, but he always was excited to look at that. What is this thing? And what does it look like? And can I use this? And his crew was always coming to him. Hey, Dave, I had this cool idea. And, and he would be like, wow, oh, that's great, you know. A true collaborator. When you yeah. look at a project and decide whether you're going to do it or not, what factors come into play as far as your decision to do one project over another? It seems as though a lot of your projects that you do are, um, you seem fearless, or at least you like to go places that might be uh, uncomfortable or seem like dangerous, perhaps. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, because I have a lot of um, my own neurosis and... Like, I had a really strong neurosis about nudity in my real life. Like, I would take baths in the dark blackness, you know? Like, <laughs> I would, you know, I'd make everyone turn off the lights if I was going to make love. You know, like, okay, turn off all the lights and don't look at me and don't. So I had a lot of issues. So when I went to do Lost Highway in particular, I was sort of wanting to take on, what is that? And I've tried to, like, be battling with this for so many years, and I almost just want to say, okay, I'm going to be naked in front of the whole world now, okay? Mm-hmm. Okay? I just can't carry this around anymore. And I want to play a character who doesn't have any issues like that. Because I'm so opposed in my own personal self. I'm such the opposite of this. I, I need to be free of this. So I think also certain projects have liberated me, um mentally or physically from some of my own hang-ups. I like to, to learn more about the human being. I mean, when my mom taught us about mythology, it's like acting, filmmaking. All those things are the storytellers for our time. So it's also like sociology. Like, okay, let me play this woman from the 1800s. What was the survival mechanism of, of a period a woman in this time? What are these undergarments you're wearing? And it's really similar to the way that you had to survive in the world at that time as a woman. And your limited options and your limited movement, your limited abilities. So there's a lot of levels of what I think are interesting. But yes, I don't want to keep playing the same part over and over again. I mean, I am on a TV show where I'm playing the same part (laughs) weekly. (laughs) But that was a different experience because that was a different... Basically... I wanted, when I was doing movies, to play different characters that were really different, explore aspects of, particularly because I'm a woman, female human beings at different periods of time, different types of women, and what were their survival mechanisms. And do, choosing to do television was like, ah, uh, like doing the longest play in the world, 
-hmm. Like, okay, I want to stay with this character and change and not change with this character and then make little changes and explore something for a long period of time. You know, it's mm -hmm. like taffy or something that you're pulling out for a long period of time. And the material was really interesting. The character was interesting to me. So, And also there was such a snobbishness attitude towards television that I thought I, anything that that's, smells like authority to me or judgment, then I, it, ma it makes me crazy, so I want to do that. Tell us a little bit about the project that you're working on with Richard Linklater that's going to be ongoing. It's a, it's a long project, and we've done several years of it so far. It's about this boy and his sister, and I'm their mom, and him growing up and changing. So you actually see these children grow up for their whole life. And Richard's a really amazing filmmaker. Um, he's done such a wide variety of material, I mean, from really sort of commercial and, you know, crowd-pleasing things like Bad News Bears or School of Rock to, like, Waking really Life, a, one of my favorite mm -hmm. movies. Yeah, it's really experimental, and now Scanner Darkly, he just did. We also just worked on Fast Food Nation together. I, I really love his way of looking at things, and he's... The relationship as an actress with directors is interesting. I mean, I have a lot of brothers, and I have a couple of brothers, and my dad I was close with, so I have good relationships with men in that way. It always kind of falls to a very paternal place or brotherly place or something. And um, I've learned so many things from each of these different directors. Like David Lynch in Lost Highway, which was a very confusing subject, and I'd say, am I playing two different people or one person? Or is this a ghost of somebody or what? You tell me, Patricia. You tell me. <laughs> you know? He was like, I trust you. Uh -huh. You you figure it out. You know, that's really. I've also worked with directors who are micromanage everything. And then there's directors like, they each have their own strength. Um, John Borman, we worked on a movie together called uh, Beyond Rangoon. Mm -hmm. Beyond Rangoon, and he would tell me a lot about. I'd say, "What's that light? I haven't seen that light before." Because he's a real like cutting edge gadget guy, believe mm -hmm. it or not. Hmm. Like the first light that was ever created for films were called this, and blah blah blah. They look like this, and he'd draw me diagrams, and he'd say, "Patricia, come over here. I want you to look through this lens. I want you to understand this lens." And we did this this little glass painting over here, and that's how we're doing that special effect. And so he was very paternal as far as educating me about the filmmaking process, mm -hmm. you know. And then there was directors like um, Sean Penn was a really interesting director too, as far as acting because he would sometimes whisper things to different actors like, "He doesn't know this, but you have a really bad headache. You have a splitting headache, and everything that he's saying to you is like hurting your head," or you know. You all had little secrets. You all had crossing over things, and I, I just felt really open and safe with him. Like it was sometimes terrifying because he would say, "It's sort of like this," and he would click into a perfect character mm. immediately, mm. like a chameleon, and have a different voice and have a different physicality, and then he'd go, "You know, like that." 
Go, yeah, but I can't do that, fucker. I mean, <laughs> shit, that's like horrible. You could just do that so easily. I mean, Jesus. Um, but I really liked him a lot as a director. He taught me a lot. What do you What do you dislike in directors? What's something that you would say? Gosh, I hope the director doesn't do this. Okay. I don't like too much. Um, constraints. I don't like... I don't like when they aren't watching what's really happening or feeling what's happening. And it's like, you'll be doing some really emotional thing and they'll cut for some stupid thing like, oh, I'm sorry, my hair was out of place. Or uh, it's like, what are you, what am I doing here? Why am I even doing this? Mm-hmm. You're so hung up on every little dot and point, or if I changed a word from was to whatever, a very similar word to was would be, and it worked as a sentence. Why are you doing that? You know, I could understand if it was a movie about being oppressed, but if it's not a <laughs> particular uh, character that's supposed to be oppressed, don't do that to me. I just. Yeah, I know some of the the great director, Alexander McKendrick, um, said, and I'm paraphrasing, but he said that if the the performance is good, it doesn't matter if there's a boom mic in the scene, doesn't matter if something's off technically, he would choose that before he'd choose any, you know, anything that was technically perfect. And I think that's true. I think it's a, a lot about the performance and it's a lot about the storytelling. And what a great example of that is that movie that they made years ago called The Celebration, which when you went initially, you were like, oh my God, this is the most unprofessional looking film I've ever seen. And within five minutes, you couldn't care less mm-hmm. about the fact that there were no lights, mm-hmm. the fact that things were out of focus, the fact that the setups were bizarre, because you were so hooked in to what was going on on screen and the story and the acting that you just didn't care less. And I think that's one of the things that's happening with the big quote-unquote tentpole pictures is that everything is absolutely perfect. You've got these amazing effects and these huge epic sort of scenarios, but it's so empty and you don't even remember what you watched when you leave the theater. Well, I think also a lot of it has to do with the movie business has always been considered a really glamorous business and there was sort of a big shift of a lot of older people retiring and moving out of the business or getting booted out of the business or shoveled out the door and a lot of bankers kind of coming in or oil money or you know all these different things where they were like I don't really know anything about movies but I want to work in Hollywood but I'm going to look at it like a strict business model like I would my employees and X and Y and it's too expensive to have insurance and blah, blah, blah. But it's art. It doesn't fit into that model. It, so what they started to do was break down each actor as a financial commodity. Your movies have made X amount of money and there's been so many screenings and this is how much it makes for it and blah, 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 blah. So they started to stop allowing directors to cast according to the way they needed to tell their story what the right essence was and that was the beginning of the death of film and also I know films are expensive to make but they cost too much for people to go see you mm-hmm. cannot afford at Especially 12 if you bucks have kids and you want some popcorn yeah 
And if you don't, then you got a babysitter who's gonna cost you 25, 30 bucks anyway, 40 bucks anyway. So even if you, if you have kids, whether you're bringing them or you're leaving them at home, it's too much with paying. That's another thing I wanted to ask you about, Patricia, is that you've been a mother for pretty much your entire film life. acting career, your entire <laughs> life. <laughs> How has that affected you as, a, as an actor? I think it helped because, honestly, I started acting before I had Enzo. But my real love was being in love. Then when I had Enzo, I realized, wait a minute, I've only had a few relationships, but they've been sort of not great. And I have all these feelings, adult feelings, and I don't know where to put them because all day I have this little baby now. And I'm talking about, this is a cup, this is a ball, this is a da. And I don't want to get hysterical in front of my kid, but I have a lot of feelings about breaking up with his dad and being a single mom and questioning the world and who am I going to be and blah, blah, blah. I have to put all those feelings somewhere. I need an outlet to have all those feelings somewhere. And also, as soon as I had my baby, I thought, wait a minute, it was a real, like, wake-up call because I thought I want to be good at something in my life you know I want to and I have to support this child so it really it changed my momentum it really made me sort of more focused do you think you will direct in the future yeah I do I do think I will and I, I think I've probably learned a lot of things from the directors that I've worked with, although there's some people, like Martin Scorsese definitely has a plan, but he also sort of, okay, let's go here. I thought, you know, well, let's see what you guys come up with. So you're already given freedom to start with. Mm -hmm. And then he'll start tweaking things or making adjustments. I remember once the monitors went out, and after a take, I was like, what did you think about that one? And he said, well, the monitors went out, but I thought it was really good. And I said, well, uh, the monitors went out. How could you tell? And he said, because um, you know you can hear it. Hmm. You don't even really have to always see it. You can hear it, and you can tell by the sound if it's right, you know, hmm. also. I worked with um, John Frankenheimer, and he would say uh, that he never would look at the monitors. He would look only at the scene, and he'd leave the monitor looking for the technicians because he felt that if he was there with the actors in the performance and the performance was good, he didn't really care. Mm -hmm. And I think there is something, like there's that additional level placed between you and the performance when you're always looking at the monitor. I mean, I use when I direct, I use it too, but I think there's something so much more visceral if I'm watching the scene mm -hmm. um, instead of watching the monitor. Well, right, I think it's going. worked for me, both ways, because I've worked with directors that I didn't think were, or I didn't feel ultimately were that talented at reading emotion. Like, my kind of acting is more minimalistic, and it doesn't really always read in the room. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying it always reads on film either, but it, sometimes things show up on film that are not there to the naked eye, to certain people. So I could have a director not getting it at all, looking with his naked eye. Mm -hmm. It's going to transfer a little bit on film. Something different will come through. And I've also, as an actor, had the experience of thinking we nailed a scene. And then looking at, like, what happened? Where did it go? <laughs> Where did it go? It's like, disappeared into some ethereal, otherworldly place. 
I feel sometimes, um, and and I'm I'm certainly not snobby about the differences between TV and film, but I have noticed that sometimes my performance, um, that the television will squish it or flatten it or something happens to it, whereas in film, um, it would be a perfectly beautiful performance on TV. It's suddenly more ordinary. Mm-hmm. Do you ever feel that? I do, but I don't honestly watch everything I do. But just the sheer, on our show, just the sheer amount of output all the time makes it really difficult to slow it down and ask the kind of questions you'd be able to in film and tweak things the way you could in film. You have a script and you have a couple months to get ready sometimes or a month or whatever it is to look at all the different layers of things. So moving so quickly in TV has its strengths because you learn a lot of skills that you have to learn in that way. But you also oftentimes, but on movies or TV, I've, I've driven away at the end of the day like, oh, Oh, we should have done this. Oh, no, I missed that. Oh, I blew it. But as a director, I think you have to be a linguist. And different directors have different strengths. I worked with Diane Keaton, and she would come up to me before I do a crime scene, and she would touch my back, and I would feel like I would feel her energy supporting me. Mm-hmm. I would be crying in the scene, and I'd hear somebody crying. And I'd, I'd say, is that okay for sound? And They'd say, yeah, and Diane would be like, I'm sorry, I just started crying. And she'd be with you. If you were laughing, she was laughing. If you were crying, she was crying. She was like, not in a crazy way, like in an absolutely supporting you 100% way. And that was really incredible. And I um, worked with John Madden uh, on Ethan Frome. And he, we'd do a scene and it would be going great and you'd feel in the groove and then something would happen and it would peter off at the end. You do another take, and it happened again. You did another take, it happened again. And you just kind of like felt, physically felt it went somewhere, but couldn't really put your finger on it. He'd say, every time you get, and, and I wouldn't say anything to him. I'm just thinking this in my interior mind. What's happening? It's going along, and then something happens. And he comes up to me and says, it's really great up to this point. And then every time when you're doing this, you look up with your eyes or you look down. Whatever I was doing physically, physically, some physical thing. You touched the table or you did this. Try not to do that this time. Don't touch that thing. Or don't look up with your eyes or don't turn around. Let's just see what happens. And the whole scene would stay on course. He could just kind of see these minuscule moments. When did it go off? What was that moment? It could be a tiny physical thing you were doing that somehow disconnected you. Mm. And so he's the only person I've ever seen that had that skill. So there's all these different directors that have these absolutely different sets of skills. The tricky thing is to be able to be a linguist as a director, to be able to speak to each of these different types of people. Some people need you to talk to them all the time about their interior life, about physically what their character's thinking, about the way things smell in the room and... What is the research they've done? And they, they need a lot of coddling. Some people don't want to be talked to a lot. Some people don't want any roles. Some people need structure. What, what, what am I doing here? Where am I going here? Mm-hmm. So it's really tricky to kind of figure out how to speak to each actor. I think we're going to have to wrap it up here. This is really interesting. Now we're at the film bite section. That sounded like a film bite to me, but if you have <laughs> another one, um, please feel free. Feed your crew. 
<laughs> really, I've been on movies where like where they had a little more money and they were like, well, let's just keep shooting, keep shooting, keep shooting. Bring in a pizza, bring in some pizzas, bring in some food for your crew. Even if you don't have to, legally, at a certain point, these little extensions of, of being gracious to these people who are working so hard for you really goes a long way. And I think crews love making movies. Crews love to work. And they care about the project. And they will give you 100%, but you got to treat them with a certain amount of gratitude as human beings. So I see a lot of that. I always have seen a lot of that. Um, That's good. Feature crew. Um, well, <laughs> my film bite um, pertains to just my observation of Patricia as an actor. And I think um, as, as one thing I noticed that Patricia always does, regardless of if, if there's time or there's not time, is she does make the time to explore in the way that she was speaking, which to her sounded completely natural, but to most actors, the idea of playing a scene in another color or the idea of looking in the farmer's almanac to see what was going on at that time, you know, is probably not second nature the way it is to her, but I think ultimately, no matter what your type of research is or how you explore your role, that exploration um, will give you the layers that distinguish the the behave the emotional behaviorist type of actor from the um, more pedestrian, you know, performer. And I think it makes all the difference in the world for the audience. Yeah, and mine is um, along the lines of what she said. It's basically to create an environment for your actors where they feel free to explore. I think that's an important thing. Maybe not put the reins on so tight um, what you expect to happen, but leave some room for spontaneity, for everybody's creative input, and remember that it's a, it's a team effort making a, making a film. Yeah, I, I just want to say what you said. I worked with Tony Scott in, in True Romance, and I would, um, I would have a lot of ideas, and he was very open to my ideas, but he, not that he always agreed with them. He'd say, well, let me think about that. No, I'm not sure. And sometimes we'd shoot the scene his way, and he'd say, this is why I think we should do it this way. And he'd have reasons to back up, because he thought about it. Mm -hmm. My question, he took it seriously. So we'd shoot it his way, and sometimes he'd say, okay, well, we did that. Let's do it your way. You know what? I think you might be right. Let's check it out your way. I think, even if you don't end up using it, and by the time you're looking at it and editing, you won't remember whose idea it was, and it doesn't matter. You're going to pick the right one. It's important to establish a moment with actors where you say, yeah, let's check out your way. Because mm -hmm. if it's always the director's way and never the actor's way, you start shutting people down. Mm -hmm. have to, you have to show actors, like, I care about your mind. I care about your contribution. I, I believe that you've done a lot of work on this character, and I want to see what you're going to show me. Um, it's good to have a plan as a director. It's good to be a strong director and have a vision for your project, not at the point of strangling all creativity. That's great. That makes sense. Um, okay, I think that we're going to wrap it up. And thank you thank so you. much for taking the time out of thank your you. busy schedule for being yes. here. And I love Michelle Gondry. We didn't get a chance to talk about that. Yeah. <laughs> um, and if you have any questions for us or for Patricia, please email us at joel 
at fatfreefilm.com, and I, I will not show it to Kamala. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh, no, also, I think you'll, I'll set up an email for Kamala. Kamala at fatfreefilm.com. She won't show it to me. Yes, I know. <laughs>